Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Rise and Fall, based out of our study on the first four chapters of First Samuel. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit christianrenewalhhi.org. We're still pushing forward in our series, Rise and Fall. And in this series, we're, we're in First Samuel, um, but we are looking at the rise of the prophet Samuel and the fall of the priest Eli and his household. This morning, we're going to start in First uh, Samuel 2.12. Let's pray over the word. Lord, we honor your word this morning. We believe it's from the breath of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would use it. We ask that you would speak to us this morning. We want to hear from you, Lord. We want to hear from you this morning. Have your way. Guard my lips. Challenge us, we pray, God. We need a weekly challenging uh, to walk in a way that honors you. Confront us if you need to confront us. Encourage us if you need to encourage us. Holy Spirit, this is your time. This is your time as we honor your word. Somebody say amen. Amen. If you're tired of hearing about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I just want to say sorry, but here we go again. For those of you who aren't familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German theologian from a brilliant family. His father was a leading psychologist in Germany, taught at the University of Berlin, and his older brother worked with Albert Einstein on splitting the atom. They were brilliant, to say the least. He finishes his doctorate at the age 21 um, in theology, um, and he has to wait a few years before he can actually teach, because you couldn't teach, I think, until you were 24 or 25 um, so he he's, has to stall because he finished his education so quickly. Eric McTaxis's um, biography is a bestseller of the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it's called Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, and Spy. He calls Dietrich Bonhoeffer pastor because he serves God faithfully. Bonhoeffer is in Germany as Nazi party rises to power, and um, the church get some serious restrictions put on it during the um, rise of Nazi influence. So Bonhoeffer creates a seminary and he's a, he joins a part of a movement called the Confessing Church and he's teaching pastors to obey the gospel uh, illegally and so he's totally um, on a watch list and illegally continues to pastor faithfully. Uh, McTaxis calls him uh, pastor, they call him prophet. He spoke out against Hitler as soon as Hitler started to rise to power. Bonhoeffer was on the radio saying, this is bad. This is not godly. We need to be really concerned uh, really quickly. He was not allowed to speak publicly anymore, which is also why he wasn't allowed to teach. Um, so they call him prophet. He continually said, all people are created in the image of God and are created with value and all people deserve honor, um, which was obviously in direct conflict with the government of the day. They call him a spy because after serious prayer and consideration, um, he decided to join the German military, um, all the while feeding information to the allies. He assisted member of his, members of his family and others in making plans to assassinate Hitler, and he seriously prayed, considered, searched his theology. He went on to write an ethics book 
kind of out of this experience of trying to decide whether or not he should just sit quietly and watch all this happen, whether or not he should run. He actually did get on a boat to America at one point, and he was out of there. But in America, he decided, wait, I need to go back and support my people. So should he run? Should he sit still? Finally, he decides that his theology tells him that what he ought to do is to um, take Hitler out. And so he eventually, they call him martyr, because eventually um, the Nazi government will hang him over the gallows after um, discovering that he had participated. He had helped gain information for, I think, two attempts to assassinate Hitler that, that weren't successful. He's martyred, um, hung on the gallows just uh, a month before the Nazi party would surrender. But I was reading him this week, um, because I like to, so sorry about that. Um, And I was reading a lecture that he gave at a conference in the year 1932. So we're just a few years before um, World War II would begin. Um, And he was at a Bible conference, and he had been there for a few days, and now it was his turn to share And so he climbs his way to the podium. Remember, in those days, oftentimes the podium was real high. He climbs his way into the podium, and this is what he says to this group of Christians and to pastors, as socially and politically, they're leaning away from the true gospel and beginning to lean towards this um, state that the church in, in Germany and much of Europe would enter into, which was not faithful to the scriptures. So he says this, He says, we come together to hear Christ. Have we heard him? I can only put the question. Each man must answer for himself. And should some of us now have to say in all honesty, we have heard nothing. And others perhaps equally honestly say, we have heard no end of things. Let me express to both groups a great concern, which has been bearing down on me with growing heaviness throughout the whole conference. Has it not become terrifyingly clear again and again in everything that we have said here to one another that we are no longer obedient to the Bible? We are more fond of our own thoughts than the thoughts of the Bible. We no longer read the Bible seriously. We no longer read it against ourselves, but for ourselves. If the whole of our conference here is to have any great significance, it may be perhaps that of showing us that we must read the Bible in quite a different way until we find ourselves again. He said, we no longer read it against ourselves, but for ourselves. Now, Germany was the leading theological hub of the day, but the the theological... um, style that was coming out of Germany, the University of Berlin would um, would have a lot of significant theologians, was very liberal, what we would call liberal scholarship. And so no one came to the University of Berlin or any seminary in Germany to learn how to obey the Bible. They came to learn theory about the Bible's narratives, about its literary devices, and then to give their opinion on the Bible. So there was no submitting to the scripture. It was examining the scripture and kind of highly intellectual people who were intrigued by the Bible, but they had no intention of obeying the Bible. And that's what Bonhoeffer means when he says that um, we read, we don't read the Bible against ourselves, but for ourselves, meaning we're entertained by all of our theories and ideas, but no one is really teaching... Um, the people of God to obey the Bible. Liberal scholarship just wanted to kind of examine it and come up with all kinds of of theories. Many of their theories have been highly discredited today. Um, So Bonhoeffer would say things. Again, he starts, he's a professor at the age of like 25. 
Um, and he would say things from a lecture and big, you know, again, big, tall lecture. And he would look down over his crowd of highly liberal students who, again, don't really want to follow Jesus. They want to give their input on, on this book. Bible's the bestseller, right? Bestseller for, since that sucker came out. Um, since the printing press, at least. Um, and so there is a lot of interest around scripture. Um, so they were interested in scripture, but not interested in obeying it. And he would climb into his lecture and he would say things like, do you obey Jesus? Do you really love him? So when he goes on to start the confessing church, he breaks away from um, the, the national church and he starts working with what's called the confessing church. And for the entire seminary, he, he started with, I think, like 30 men. He would make them read the Sermon on the Mount over and over. And the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus's longest recording sermon, was their like staple. When you left Bonhoeffer, you were going to know the Sermon on the Mount. You were going to live in a way that honored Jesus. So he stands in front of all of his colleagues, all of the great intellects, and he says, is it not terrifyingly clear that we no longer obey the Bible? We like it to tickle our ears and our interests, but it is not authoritative, and it does not demand um, that we live in such a way that honors it. He says, isn't it clear that we just read it to tickle our ears and not to obey it? Bonhoeffer says to this group of intellectuals, you take the crown off of your intellect and you need to place it back on Christ. He is the king, the true king. He is the true way. He is the very embodiment of truth and he is life itself. And as I was reading Bonhoeffer this week and studying the book of Samuel and where we are, I thought it was um, highly relevant to read to you that passage because as we study today, we're going to be introduced for the first time really to the sons of Eli. And as we look at the sons of Eli, it becomes terrifyingly clear that these young men grew up in the house of God. They were educated by the house of God. They were very familiar with the temple, the dress, the lingo. But our text today says that they did not know God. And what a terrifying statement. What a, um, a caution for us that it's possible to know the house of God very well, to know how to get to the bathroom and where the vacuum is and the closet and know where all the stuff is and know how to talk and how to shake hands and how to say what you need to say, but to not know the God of the house. I would rather us meet in a public restroom and know the God of the house than meet in a beautiful temple, a beautiful house, and not have the presence of the Holy Spirit. And these men, they lived their lives in the house of God, but they did not know him. And that is a terrifying caution for the church today. And Bonhoeffer says to these theologians, you're well acquainted with the words of scripture, but you have no acquaintance with the spirit of the scripture or the spirit that inspired the scripture. You're more fond of your own thoughts than the thoughts of the Holy Spirit given to us through the inspired word of God. And the book of Judges says of their day, the day that we're studying here in Samuel, that every man does what is right in his own eyes, what he perceives. So let's read. We're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12, and we're going to read through verse 26. Here's our text. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when they made any offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came. 
Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, which would have been proper protocol to burn the fat first, and then the priest to be able to eat from the sacrifice. The servants would say to them, No, you must give it now, and if not, I'll take it by force. Thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now Samuel was ministering before the, before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer their yearly sacrifices. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord, and they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons, two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 22 says, Now Eli was very old. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all those people. No, my sons, it's not a, it is no good report. And I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? They would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Remember, that's a, that's a scripture that the New Testament will use to describe the raising of Jesus. The first thing I wanted to point out is that the opening line of our passage today is much more poetic in the Hebrew than the way it comes through in English. It reads in English, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. But the King James uh, kind of catches the poetry of it. The King James says, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Literally, um, uh, Belial, Belial, some people pronounce it. Um, the word means sons of wickedness. It means sons of destruction. Um, it's what he's calling them, sons of wickedness, sons of destruction. Remember, sons of is a common expression in Hebrew that doesn't demand that the thing that begets the person, that the, the father that's begetting the son is personified. It doesn't necessarily mean that it, it literally comes from a person or a being. Um, remember, Jesus would call the um, uh, those disciples the sons of thunder. Most disciples... Or most scholars believe that description of James and John implied that they were a bit hot-headed. I once read a man suggest that they were called sons of thunder because they were a little gassy, that Jesus would walk with them all day, and he deemed them the ones who passed gas like thunder. I obviously prefer the latter suggestion. But sons of Belial is an interesting phrase. Belial means, literally it means worthless ones. Without value, wicked, totally evil. In extra-biblical writing, the, the phrase Belial is used to represent a demonic um, entity. In, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, um, the New Testament says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, fellowship, or what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial? The Corinthian text refers to Satan as with this word, Belial. So literally, our passage opens with um, this statement. The sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They didn't know Yahweh. There's a little bit of poetry and a little bit of a spiritual undertone that we miss a little bit when we're just reading the English translation. But literally, what it says is that the Eli's natural sons were actually sons of hell. They didn't know Yahweh at all. 
And again, a profound thought that the man of God, the priest, the judge of the day could raise sons who scripture would call sons of hell. And we need to be reminded that God does not allow his presence to settle on the wicked. The scripture says without holiness, no man sees God. If we intend to be a people of God's presence, and I deeply believe that's what we're called to, to be a house that really releases praise and worship and a house that's committed to God's word and who honors the presence of the Holy Spirit, who believes theologically and experientially that the Uh, that the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity who Jesus said, I wouldn't leave you as orphans, but I'd send to you this person, the third person of the Trinity, and you will experience him. You will be encouraged by him. He will teach you. He will fellowship with you. He will move in power in your midst. If we're going to be a church that really believes that, we need to also remember that the Holy Spirit does not descend and rest upon the wicked. Eli's sons genealogically are sons of the priests, but spiritually they're sons of hell. The Holy Spirit does not rest upon them. They are the great unanointed priest of God. They are not men marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so to us as a church who really wants the presence of God in our midst, holiness has to matter to you. And, and hear me for a second. Discipleship has to matter to you. And so many times in history, as a staff, we were talking about this this week, oftentimes in revival, there are these great moves of God where many people come and they have experiences with the Holy Spirit, which is what we want, right? Like people to experience the Holy Spirit. But oftentimes we don't follow up with discipleship because discipleship is a little more regimented, is a little more systematic. Discipleship means like reading the Bible every day and learning. We kind of have these encounters at the altar and then we want to go on about our way. But awakening, what we're really after societal, national awakening is when a church will hunger for revival and yoke that hunger for revival with discipleship. And so we'll see people saved, delivered, and then raised up in the house of the Lord. And if we want the presence of the Lord to really rest and stay, we've got to teach people to live holy because God does not anoint the wicked. Discipleship matters. Second thing, uh, we don't have a ton of information about the heart posture of Eli. He's certainly not totally wicked. We see him rebuking his sons here. But he's also not totally committed to the things of God. He's a man who lives compromise. He's a man who lives stale. Eli is a man who has a level of commitment to the Lord, but has quit living with total surrender while his sons are totally wicked. And we see the compromise generation begets the wicked generation. He is stale. His sons are rebellious. He is backslidden. His sons totally denounce God. His staleness is the seed of his son's rebellion. And here we find a principle that we need to take heed to understand. That one, when one generation takes the liberty to live with a little sin and a little compromise, the next generation will take license to live however they want. Staleness begets rebellion. Rebellion. 
If we put our faith on the back burner and allow it to become a trivial part of our life rather than it being the absolute center that motivates my daily living, we risk the generations after us being totally rebellious, totally stale, totally trivial. Your kids may perceive your staleness as hypocrisy. Your kids will think, my parents go to church because it's a cultural, societal norm. They go to church for fellowship. They go to church because their friends go to church. If your faith doesn't happen here and happen at home on Monday and at home on Tuesday and on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, if they don't catch you praying every now and then, if they don't hear you stop in the grocery store and kind of try to share the gospel, you don't have to be perfect, but you've got to be consistent. If they see inconsistency, Consistency in you, they will assume hypocrisy, and once they assume hypocrisy, they will rebel. And I think we've seen that time and time again. The generations after us will think that we're just old religious folks who went to church because it's what people did in the South. I want the generations after us to remember us as passionate lovers of Jesus, passionate about God and his kingdom with a burn in our belly. I'm okay if they think we're a little crazy as long as they realize that we're consistent and we've got some real burn going on down here. Now the blame is not totally on Eli. We certainly believe in personal responsibility. I think we learn a principle from this text, but I haven't come to lay down a universal law this morning. And I want to take a minute just to explain to you the difference between principle and universal law, because sometimes we get this tangled and and, and the confusion actually um, is very destructive. The principle is that stale people produce rebellious generation but remember that the holy spirit can do whatever he wants to do and paul's parents certainly weren't followers of jesus but the holy spirit still kicked him off his donkey caused him to be blind filled him with his presence and used him to preach the gospel to the nations the principle is there but the principle is not a law and when you approach the scriptures y'all listen to me for a minute because this is important it's a little bit of a rabbit trail but it's important for our future i promise you this when you approach the scriptures, you need to be very aware of what type of literature you are reading. And so when you approach the New Testament and you approach Paul in Ephesians, and he says, you are saved by grace through faith. It's not your own doing. It is a gift of God. That is an absolute law. No person comes to God except by faith. That's an epistle. That's a letter and a teaching. And Paul is giving us law. But when you approach wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs, it's, it's filled with, with principle, not law. And so we know that that culturally the king was responsible for leading his people in wisdom and in many ancient um, Near Eastern societies. And so when we see Solomon giving us this long list of wisdom statements, we understand that that was a, a cultural norm, almost a societal requirement that the king would lead his people in wisdom. But when you get to wisdom literature, you read it differently. Wisdom literature gives principles, godly principles. It does not lay down hard law. Now let me show you something. So for instance, in Proverbs 10.3, the scripture says that the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. But when you read 1 Corinthians 4 verses 10 through 13, uh, the scripture says, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. That means beaten. We labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still the scum of the world. 
the refuse of all things. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, right now, in this very moment, I am very hungry. I hunger. Solomon says that in general, when people live righteous, they prosper. And he encourages Israel to live righteous. But you are not allowed, I do, do not encourage you reading the scripture and saying to Paul that you are hungry because you are wicked. If we were half as spiritually in tune as Paul was with the Holy Spirit, we would see things happen in our city that we couldn't even imagine. My spirituality is dumb compared to Paul's spirituality. I don't get to read the text with the principle and read it as a law and say to Paul, you go hungry because you're wicked. Now watch, we don't get to say to nations who are experiencing famine that you, we will not help you, we will not feed you because the scripture says that if you were righteous, you would and go hungry. It's your problem. Deal with it. What we see is the New Testament church. We see this prophet named Ananias Agabus, I'm sorry, prophesying that there would be a future famine. And the New Testament church saying, you know what we should do is we should gather all of our money and all of our food, and then we should send it to them while they experience this famine. The principle is that the godly work really hard, they prosper, and the godly don't go hungry. But the principle is not a law. And if you try to treat the principle as if it's a law, you'll say to the hungry child, you're hungry because you're wicked, and you'll accuse the child rather than encourage and support the child in the way that scripture has commanded you to do so. Now watch, watch, I want to show you a few more things. Proverbs says, In verse 12, in chapter 12, verse 21, no ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Now the scripture says that Job was the most righteous man in the earth, yet he has plenty of trouble and boils cover his body. And this is exactly, y'all listen to me, this is, I'm, I'm being pastor here for a minute. This is exactly what Job's friends did not understand, is that there were biblical principles But they were not absolute laws. Job's suffering was not because of his wickedness. Job's suffering was not because he had dishonored God. The the friends of Job used a principle as a law and condemned a man who God honored. And they found themselves at the end of a long rebuke from the living God. They're principles to live by, not absolutes. They slap Job with every principle they can grab and they wield the principles as if they're a weapon and they beat Job down with him and they find themselves opposed to the living God. And we as a church believe in principles. We teach principles when we're, there's a distinction. We understand the distinction between principles and laws. We should teach principles. We believe in principles. I'm going to be real gut level honest with y'all just for a minute. We believe in principles when it comes to things like physical healing. Faith plays a role in physical healing. We see that in scripture. Hidden sin biblically seems to open us up to demonic attacks. Paul tells the church that many are weak and ill because they partake of communion in a way that dishonors God. We know that harboring for unforgiveness can do things to your physical makeup. And the scripture says it opens you up to demonic attacks. We understand that. But, and this is a very big but, you have to be very careful that we wield these, we don't wield these principles as absolute laws and begin to beat people over the head who are struggling with sickness. Y'all listen to me. This is, this matters right now. 
There is no biblical text. There is absolutely no biblical text that says that all sickness is directly related to unforgiveness. That's an extra biblical idea that the enemy will use to make. He will begin to use you as a mouthpiece of condemnation if you don't posture your heart right. So the principle is that sometimes unforgiveness can be related to sickness. But if you begin to use that principle as a law and every person who's sick, you say you're harboring bitterness. You don't know that. And that person may not have they might not be harboring bitterness. And so by saying to that person, you are harboring bitterness, this is your fault. You are now agreeing with the accuser and you're cursing a person who's coming to you for ministry. And this this matters, church. It really matters. Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 15, Paul says to the Galatian church, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also has become as you are. You did me no wrong. You knew it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at verse. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify that if possible, you would have taken your own eyes out and given them to me. Now, whether or not you believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh was an eye problem, which I actually don't. For the most part, I don't see the thorn in the flesh as an issue with his eyes. I do see scripturally, it's very clear, that Paul went to Galatia because there was an altitude difference. And when there's an altitude difference, there's a a difference in bugs. I can't think of like a smart word to use there. Um, But, but, but. Do you guys know what I'm saying? There's a, there's a difference. And so he retreats to the higher ground to try to recover. The scripture makes that really clear from an eye issue. And Paul says to the Galatian church, you would have pulled your own eyes out and given them to me. You did not say to me, Paul, you have an eye issue because you're living in sin. Do you guys kind of hear what I'm saying? Now, when Timothy has frequent ailments, he's got a stomach issue. The scripture makes this really clear. Paul writes to Timothy and Paul tells Timothy, you've got this ailment. He calls it frequent ailments. You've got the stomach issue. Drink a little bit of wine and and that wine will settle your stomach and you'll be okay. Don't stop ministering. Drink a little wine and keep pushing forward. I think Paul was praying for healing, believing for healing. But there's there's no there's no evidence that the apostles didn't struggle with sickness. And Paul does not say to Timothy, you have hidden sin in your life. That's why you have stomach issues. Paul says to Timothy, like a father would drink a little bit of wine, let your stomach settle. And then he says, and preach the gospel, preach the whole counsel of the word of God. You keep preaching with faithfulness. He does not say you are you are living in hidden sin. He doesn't use a principle that is a scriptural principle to try to beat Timothy down with it. I think Luke, the physician, would have said the same thing. Now, let me be gut level honest, and I'm sure I'm going to get stones thrown at me about this. But here it comes. Um, me, as your pastor, I've had a physical issue for a couple years now. And I went to see a spirit-filled man of God. I prayed. I fasted. People have laid hands on me. Don't ask me what my physical issue is because it's embarrassing. And I don't want you all to know about that. Don't, don't be asking me about that. But I go to see my doctor who is a spirit-filled man of God. And the, and the doctor gives me some medication. And he says, take this medication. It's going to help you. Now, I struggled in that moment because I go to a spirit-filled church. And the spirit-filled people are going to perceive me as weak and ungodly. They are going to perceive me as walking in unforgiveness. They are going to say that I've lived with hidden sin. They are going to do everything they can to make me feel less spiritual because my physical body is having issues. So I struggled not to take the medication. 
And I go to my pastor, a man who still pastors me in my life today, and I say, here's the scenario. Um, the doctor is giving me medication. He says this medication will help me to continue in ministry, but I'm having a lot of pain. I'm having enough pain that it's hard for me to stand behind a pulpit. And the, my pastor says to me, he says, Caleb, if the pill will help you preach the gospel more faithfully in this season as you wait for healing, you take the pill. He says, if the pill will help you to be a better father in the season of waiting for healing, you take the pill. If the pill will help you to be a better husband and to continue to disciple and to continue to love people as you struggle with sickness and wait for healing, then you take the pill. And so I'm still taking the pill. I'm still not healed. I'm believing for healing. I am believing for full restoration. I am praying. I'm fasting. There are men and women of God in the room have put their hands on me and prayed, but I'm still struggling with a physical issue and I'm still taking medication. But for sometimes our language would say to me that I am less spiritual than the rest because I need to take a pill. And I say to you, I reject your condemnation. You could, you could say to me this morning and I hear it, man. I hear it. You can say it. I see it all over the internet. You can say to me this morning, Caleb, you do not burn for God because you have to take a pill. And I say to you, no, I burn for Jesus like I've never burned in my life. And I am passionate and expectant and I'm believing God to move. You can say, Caleb, you're living in some hidden sin. And I say to you with absolute conviction, there is no hidden sin in my life. I'm a man of integrity. And if you see something in my life that's shaky, you come to me and bring it to me and I will correct it. There is no hidden sin in my life. I completely and totally and utterly reject your condemnation. I am a man of God filled with the spirit. I'm not less than because my physical body struggles. So principle and law. So what am I saying? That we should never help people come to forgiveness if they're struggling with sickness? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying if someone comes to you and they're struggling with sickness and you feel like the Holy Spirit might be saying, hey, there might be some bitterness here. It's a scriptural principle. You suggest it. You say, hey, I feel like God might be saying there's some bitterness here. Do you, does that resonate with you? And if so, let's, let's pray and just see if God would heal you. But you don't, you don't, you don't diagnose. Because if you diagnose wrongly, you are now the mouthpiece of hell. You are condemning the people of God. You stand right next to the friends of Job and you are condemning people who God honors. Do you guys kind of feel what I'm saying? That we've got to have, we've got to have real, if we're going to continue to be a church that believes in healing and believes in principles, we've got to have wisdom in the way that we use our principles. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? And so what I'm saying this morning is there's a principle here that stale people beget rebellious children. But I'm, what I'm also saying is it's a principle. It's not an absolute law. If your children don't follow Jesus today, I'm not saying that's your fault. Your children have a will. They have a free will and they can make their own decisions. Um, there's a principle that if you totally lived as if your faith didn't matter, your kids are going to live that way. But many of you did your best to love God and you did your best to train your kids up in the way of the Lord, Proverbs says, and your kids still walked away and you don't know what to do with that. You don't hear me condemning you today. I'll I'll stand with you. I'll encourage you. There is no such thing as a perfect parent and every one of us in this room have some things we wish we didn't did. Didn't did. You didn't did. Y'all got me sweating. There's some things you wish you didn't did. I understand that. The principle still stands. That if you raise your kids in an ungodly house, they're going to live ungodly. But the principle is not a law. And sometimes we do our absolute best to raise our kids in the way of the Lord. And they still get to make their own decisions one day. And if you raise your kids in an ungodly home, the Holy Spirit still does whatever he wants to do. 
The law does not stand. You raised your kids in an ungodly home. You got saved later and you're praying and believing God to save your kids. I'm standing right with you. The Holy Spirit can do what the Holy Spirit wants to do. The principle does not bind the Holy Spirit. He gets to do what he wants to do. And so even if you were an awful parent and your kids are living like hell, I don't stand here today and tell you it's your fault. I stand here today and say, let's pray and believe the Holy Ghost to knock Paul off his donkey if that's what we got to do. The Holy Spirit can do what he wants to do. We're not a house of condemnation. We're not a house that yields principles as laws in order to condemn folks. We're a house of encouragement. We're a house that stands with one another. We're not a house that throws stones. We're a house that blocks, shields. Love covers a multitude of sins. And love bears up when someone's struggling. Paul says to the Galatian church, when I struggled physically, you did not cast me off. You would have pulled your own eyes out and given them to me when I was struggling with my sickness. That's the kind of church we want to be. A church that believes in healing, prays for healing. We've got all kinds of principles that we use, but we don't use the principles as laws to condemn folks. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm sorry if that's offensive, but I feel like I need to say that. Now, the next thing that we notice is that um, we see Eli in his old age confronting his sons. Scripture says that they despise the holy things. They take from the sacrifice of the people. And the scripture says that they're sleeping with women in the uh, house of God. God's holiness is being dishonored. They have not honored the distinction between the sacred and the common. Something we need to teach. We need to encourage that that God's holiness is something to be revered. It's not something to um, treat lightly. But Eli's confrontation comes really late. He's very old at this point. And the question is, was he passively watching for years as his son slowly began to dishonor God? Surely they didn't wake up one day and say, we're just going to steal the fat from the sacrifices and beat up people who won't give it to us. And we're going to sleep with whatever women we find at the house. That didn't happen in a night. There was a long, slow process of dishonoring the Lord where Eli never spoke up. He never confronted And now the prophet's going to say to Eli at chapter 2, verse 29, which will be our passage in a couple weeks. The prophet says to Eli, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourself on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel. Eli's not living in total wickedness, but Eli is, and and y'all forgive me because your boy's on keto right now trying to lose some weight myself, okay? I get it. I struggle with weight, struggle with weight my whole life. But the scripture says that Eli was a fat old man. And God says to Eli, you got fat by eating parts of the sacrifice that belonged to me. So so Eli's not totally wicked. You see him trying to confront his sons, but he has lived compromised. You've gotten fat from sacrifices. Then he says, you honor your sons above me. You want their validation more than you want my validation. You haven't confronted your sons as they walked in wickedness because you were scared that they'd turn their back on you. All the while, you've, I've turned my back on you and you don't care at all. This is the passage where God says, I'll cut you down. And there's one more thing in this passage that I, I want to take a moment to look at. I didn't notice it until I read the passage a couple of times this week and tried to understand what it's saying. Eli's sons do not directly steal from the people's sacrifices. The text says their servants do. And the Hebrew word for servant is the word for young men. Verse 17 reads, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. 
I struggle with the grammar of that as if to understand if the young men refers to these young servants or, and the men refers to the priest or if it's all referring to the priest. I don't know. I can't, I can't sift through the grammar, but the text does say that, that, that the priest had young servants and those young servants were the one who would go and steal from the sacrifice. And if people wouldn't allow them to steal from the sacrifice, the young men would say, we'll take it to you by force. So now not only do we see, we see stale Eli, we see rebellious priest, and now we see violent young men. There is a, a generational flow here of wickedness that's happening. They threaten the people. Don't give us what we asked for. We'll take it by force. And the pattern continues, and the nation is degrading morally, and their faith is radically declining. And it seems to flow from the compromise of the spiritual head, Eli, to the rebellion of his sons, to the violence of these young men. And as we continue in our series, the contrast is very clearly, as I try to look and understand the Hebrew, that these young men who are assisting the priest are the very young men that are Samuel's equals. Samuel, who's going to be the man of God, who the scripture says that he grew in stature and in favor with God and man. This man who God is going to anoint in power. This man who the scripture says not one of his words fall to the ground. Samuel is being raised in a culture of young men who are stealing from the sacrifice and who are threatening the people of God and saying, if you don't give us what we want, we're going to take it from you. And Samuel is being raised in a culture of young men who are sexually immoral and having sex with women who are supposed to be working at the temple. And Samuel, this is his norm. This is his, these are his peers. This is the way that his society lives. But sometimes God will look for one who's living in a society of brokenness, for one who's living in a society of sexual immorality, for one who's living in a society of staleness and compromise and violence. And God can do with that one things that you wouldn't imagine. And God puts his spirit on that one young boy in such a way that not one prophetic word ever falls to the ground. When Samuel comes around, people get a little bit nervous because what he says comes to pass. God's eyes search the society and find one young boy who's living in in a culture of absolute rebellion, but the young boy's heart still burns for God, and God says, I can do more with one who burns than with thousands who are stale. I'll take him. I'll take him. So as we, again, as we study I'm, I'm saying I want you to be Samuel in our culture and our society. I want us to be a church that embraces the posture of Samuel that says, yes, sexual immorality is absolutely normal in our culture. We get that. But that's not who we are because the presence of God doesn't rest on that. So we're going to choose to live sexually pure lives because we really want the power of God to rest on us. And we want to be a catalyst to change. You guys understand that Samuel is going to lead the nation back to the Lord eventually. But God's going to use the one who's a catalyst to change. He's willing to live holy in a society of staleness. God will use that one to be the catalyst to change. Are you that one or are you not that one? You guys feeling what I'm saying this morning? Who are you? I get that everybody around you lives, lives immoral. I get it. I understand it. How do you live? How desperately do you want to be used of God? What kind of church are you going to be? What's going on in your ribcage? Are you stale? Is your faith trivial? Or are you burning hot in here? And as we close, um, worship team, you can come. I wanted to read to you Paul's words to Timothy. In chapter 2, verse 10. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, you entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
So Paul here turns this pattern of 2 Samuel on its head and says, No, I am not Eli the stale priest who's raising rebellious sons. I am an apostle who lives with faith and passion. And I am raising Timothy, a man who struggles, yes, but a man who's passionate and who teaches the word of God faithfully. And Timothy is going to teach that word to faithful men who are going to teach it to faithful men. And rather than a, a society that's degrading morally because the spiritual heads are stale, we now have a society that is advancing the kingdom of God because there's a pattern that's flipped on its head. And I want to read to you again Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, my, my presence, I am with you always until the end of the age. I'm asking you again to be a house that's committed not just to seeing people pray a prayer of salvation, but to seeing people pray a prayer of salvation and then becoming disciples and then discovering what God has created them for. And then we want those people who pray a prayer of salvation to get to teach other faithful men who will teach other faithful men. I'm asking you to be a house that's committed to discipleship. Discipleship's not always fun. Discipleship's not always rolling on the ground and laughing. I like those nights, friend. You don't ever doubt that. I like the nights of just worshiping and getting what we call buck wild, okay? I like those nights. Discipleship's not always like that. It's like coffee at a table asking questions that you're really uncomfortable asking. Saying to somebody, how are you doing in your sexual relationship? Saying to a young man who's in a dating relationship, are you sexually pure? Are you honoring God in this? That's not easy for me to ask. But discipleship is leading people down that path. Now, I want you to be a people who really love the worship nights, who jump, roll, laugh, pray, cry, do whatever you need to do. I've already told you that our altar is the snot haven. If you need to snot up here, you snot up here. Do what you got to do. But I'm asking you to be a people who get up the next day and go to coffee with somebody and teach them godly principles. Because we're not after just a moment, but we're after an awakening that changes our society. And so we're, we're beating, I know we are beating the idea of connect groups, but we're not beating it without cause. We understand that discipleship happens in connect groups. I'm asking you to be a people who impart your faith. We're asking you to be a church that serves, serves the church and serves outside the church. We're not asking you to do that for no reason. We're asking you to learn to live really Christ-like because the Holy Spirit just likes resting on Christ-like people. The Holy Spirit loves Jesus, if you didn't know that. And the more we look like Jesus, the more we're going to get some Holy Spirit in our midst. I'm not asking you to serve for no reason. I want us to be a people who are, are serving people because Jesus was a serving leader, a serving Messiah. He served us. Therefore, we reflect his nature by I'm not asking you to do that for no reason. I'm asking you to do it because there's a generation coming that will either be drawn to your sincerity or put off by your staleness. They will either be drawn to our commitment. Again, they may think we're crazy for a while, and that's all right. But they will be drawn to your sincerity, or they will say, you're hypocrites. I don't want anything to do with that. The future of this community, the future of our national community, moral standing of who we are and who we're going to be, our destiny that's beyond us depends on the way that we live today, the way that we move today. God can use one Samuel in the midst of a corrupt society to change things. Maybe that's all he's looking for. So who are you? Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.